You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. Happy holiday weekend. This is the weekend where we stop and consider the, the high cost for the, the sort of freedoms that we enjoy in our society. And I hope that sometime along the way, you remember. Each and every week in this series, we're taking a look at some basic concept of our Christian faith as is laid out in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and today, we're looking at something we, we typically talk about at Christmas time, and that is the incarnation. Now, the Creed doesn't use the word incarnation, but it teaches the doctrine of incarnation when it says, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Our text this morning clearly explains the incarnation. Verses 1 and 2 sort of teach the incarnation, and 3 and 4 gives us the practical differences the incarnation makes in the lives of God's people. So let's take a look at the first two verses, and what we see in this teaching of the incarnation are, are two things. Uh, it, is, it is profoundly, it is deeply, it is deliberately doctrinal, and it is profoundly historical. Doctrinal and historical. What do I mean by deliberately doctrinal? <clears throat> to some people, doctrine is a real downer word. You're thinking, oh boy, I'm glad I got up early for this one, doctrine. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm not calling it doctrinaire. Being doctrinaire is bad. Uh, being, you know, doctrine is a faith position. Doctrinal are things concerning that faith position. Doctrinaire is being a bully with your doctrine. It's insisting and cramming things down people's throats, and it's, it's bad. Uh, it's bad to be narrow or closed or conceited or smug. It's bad to be closed to reason. It's bad to not listen. It's to what others have to say, for fear of being doctrinaire, however, uh, we can end up very intellectually dishonest. And uh, we're just not honest about the fact that we are all, every single human being on this planet is in fact doctrinal. A doctrine is first and foremost a belief, uh, a faith position. It's not something that you can ever prove scientifically or empirically. And secondly, it's, it's something you live on, you base your life on, you bet your life on it. And third, it's something that, like it or not, we all contend with over other people or with other people. <clears throat> That's a doctrine. I just wanted you to see, even though we shouldn't be doctrinaire, we are all doctrinal. And let's dig into that. For example, let's say Miss, Ms. A is a Christian and Mr. B is not. Ms. A one day sits down with Mr. B and she says, you know, I just wish that you could believe Jesus is Savior and Lord. Let me share this with you. 
And Mr. B, being a typical American, says, hey, look, lady, nobody can really know anything definite about God. Don't give me this. Furthermore, you should never try to persuade anyone else to see things your way. That is just so uncool. Now, here's the problem. First of all, when Mr. B, not the clothing store, but Mr. B says, you can't know anything definite about God, what is that? That, too, at that very moment, is a very clear faith position. It's not scientific. It's not empirical. It's a belief. Second, when he says you shouldn't try to persuade anyone to take on your, that your take of spirituality is the right one, he is at the very same moment doing the very thing he is forbidding as he is forbidding it. <coughs> See? Okay, we can close. Um, <clears throat> what this means is both Ms. A and Mr. B are being doctrinal. They both have non-scientific faith positions. They've both bet their lives on their respective position. But here's the difference. Ms. A is being openly doctrinal, while Mr. B is being in denial about being doctrinal. Yet most people believe all doctrine somehow is a bad idea. And what I'm trying to say is we should not ever be doctrinaire, yet we can't avoid being doctrinal. Everybody has faith assumptions about God, eternity, human nature, moral truth, sin, heaven, hell. And we've bet our lives on that position. Even if your position is nobody can know, that's still a position. Having said all of that, what then is the doctrine of incarnation? Believe me, this really will have practical application in your life. It's just not a bunch of information, uh, I hope. No, it, it will be. Okay, the doctrine of, in, of in, incarnation. It says here that the word of life, the invisible, has become visible. The eternal has become temporal. The intangible has become material. In other words, God has become human. The absolute has become particular. The ideal has become real. God of the universe has become a human being. This is not only a very, very specific doctrine, it's also unique amongst all of the world's religions. And one of the reasons we're afraid to ever talk about doctrine is because it distinguishes, it differentiates us from others, and we can't help it, and here's exactly why. On the one hand, you have... Uh, some religions, some people want to lump it and call it Eastern religions, but, but schools of thought such as Buddhism or Hinduism that say God is so imminent 
close, reachable, imminent in all things, that incarnational is no big deal. Incarnation is somehow normal. These systems say and believe that God is in everything, therefore incarceration. Incarnation is, it's one of those mornings, incarnation is nothing special. God is incarnate in all people and animals and birds and things, inanimate and animate. Christians say Jesus Christ is God-man. People from the perspective I'm talking about say, yeah, well, okay, incarnation is in everything else, so why not in him? All right? On the other hand, you have a family of religions that some want to call Western religions like Islam and Buddhism, or Judaism, Islam and Judaism, that say God is so transcendent, which means way off and far and separate and holy over all things, so transcendent over all things that incarnation is an impossibility. God becoming man, that's blasphemy. Therefore, Christianity is unique amongst the world's religions, and it doesn't suggest incarnation is normal, nor does it say that incarnation is impossible. It says God is so imminent that it's entirely possible, but he's so transcendent that the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ is a universe-splitting, history-altering, life-transforming, paradigm-busting happening in time and space. Christianity has an absolute, unique view that sets it apart from every other school of thought, faith system, religion. One more thing. The doctrine of incarnation is not just deliberately doctrinal, but it is, in fact, profoundly historical. Doctrinal, now historical. Look at what John said about Jesus in verses 1 and 2. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our, our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. He's saying... These accounts of Jesus Christ walking on the water, rising from the dead, the words he spoke, everything did, these are not legends. These are things we saw him do, heard him say, felt with our own hands. In other words, the doctrine of incarnation is God becoming historical, stepping into our observable timeline. The manger, the resurrection, the story of Jesus is not just a sweet, sentimental story. It's validated history. This goes completely against everything our culture believes. Now, here's the thing that the incarnation presses on us. These are either lies that we're reading in the New Testament, or they're eyewitness accounts they can't be legends. It doesn't leave that kind of latitude. How can I be so sure? Fiction writers throw in all kinds of details in the text uh, to give a realistic sense to what you're reading. I mean, good novels or anything. Uh, Ancient legends, however, are never written like that. For example, last week when we looked at uh, the account of Jesus walking in the, the, the water in the storm in John chapter 6, it says, uh, you know, right there in the middle of the storm, that they had rowed out into the lake, and this is important, 
In the text, it said three or four miles. They saw Jesus in the storm. Remember that? Three or four miles. And this is key. Because if you look at other ancient literature, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, imagine Homer, not Simpson, Homer saying, Achilles met Hector in one-on-one combat, and they were either three or four miles away from the wall of Troy. He wouldn't say that, and here's why. Because in ancient literature, authors did not put in details that didn't help the plot develop the character or make the point. Therefore, if John was writing a legend, he wouldn't have said three or four miles. He would have only said it if he was writing down eyewitness accounts. And the witness says, I think we were three or maybe four miles out. Or maybe there were two witnesses. One says, I, we were three miles out. And the guy said, no, no, it's more like four miles out. Uh, and so John says, okay, uh, three or four miles out. That's the only reason he would put it in there. So when he says, I heard him with my own ears. I saw him with my own eyes. John is saying to every reader who ever reads it in all time in history, this is an eyewitness account. And we'll go deeper. Every reader of the New Testament knew that these were either deliberately fabricated lies or else they were true eyewitness accounts, but they could not be legends. They don't allow that option. You have no intellectual integrity if you try to hold that position. If they are lies, then really they are the stupidest lies that have ever been made, and here's why. These purported lies were written down during the lifetime of the people who were there. So, for example, if you're going to write down that 500 people saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead in the Kidron Valley in those 30-some years into the new era, you didn't write it 40 or 50 years later like the Gospels were written. You would wait and write it down about 100 years later when all of the eyewitnesses or contemporaries of that time were dead. Because if you're right, 500 people saw him in the Kidron Valley and lots of people still living who were there at the time. Paul makes references, 1 Corinthians 15. You do it that way, your religion is never going to get off the ground. But it certainly did get off the ground because they wrote these accounts and they were not contradicted at that time. Contradictions arise in the... 400s, late 300s, early 400s. The point of the incarnation is Jesus Christ truly lived, truly died, truly was resurrected. Then somebody says, hey man, you're being way doctrinaire here. I'm not into it. When a typical person says, no, or they say, you know, I like the teaching of Jesus. I love all the stories and even the meanings behind them about loving one another and serving one another. I love that stuff. It doesn't matter if these things really happened or not. Remember all that we talked about last week and the implications of seeing Jesus Christ as Lord? 
Because people are going to say in our culture, and this is the dominant belief of our Western culture, that doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is that you're you be a good person. It doesn't matter whether you believe the doctrine of the atonement or the virgin birth. It doesn't matter. What matters is for you to be a really good person. But the great irony in that is this. That too is a doctrine. And you're just not being honest about it. It's the doctrine. Just be good? Well, how good? It's the doctrine of, self, of justification by works. When somebody says, come on, I don't like you talking about doctrine. What really matters is just be a good person. What they're saying is it doesn't matter that Jesus Christ actually lived the life that we should live and died to death that we should have died. And that's a doctrine, see? And it says, I'm not so bad that I need someone else to be good for me. I can be good on my own. I'm not so cut off from God, or God is not so holy that there has to be some kind of punishment for sin. That doesn't matter. He's not holy. Nobody has a standard for me but me. The gospel is not that Jesus Christ came to earth, tells us how to live, and then we go off and live that good life and give that record to God at the end saying, now you owe me a blessing because I did it the way he said. The gospel is Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that when I trust him, I'm accepted by him and live a life of grateful joy for him. In other words, if these things didn't happen, then we cannot be saved by grace. The doctrine of the incarnation is Jesus did come, and if he didn't, then the story of Christmas is just one more moral constraint that in the end will just crush you into fine powder. If it isn't true that John saw him, heard him, felt him, that he really came, then Christmas really is the most depressing time of the year. But not if you believe these first two verses. Not if you understand Christmas is not just an inspiring story that we have to live up to, but it's deliberately doctrinal and it's profoundly historical. And if you really get a hold of that, what then difference does it make in our lives? The incarnation will do four radical things for you. It'll make you deeply mystical. It'll make you happily material. It'll make you fearlessly relational. And it'll make you freely emotional. And I know what you're thinking. Four points. Look at the clock. I'll be quick. <laughs> deeply mystical. Look carefully. It says in verse 4, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father with the so and with the Son, Jesus Christ. This word fellowship, koinonia, means if Jesus Christ has really come, if he's really become physical, if Christmas is true, then we have, based on that, a basis for a personal relationship with God that we never had before. God is no longer 
a remote idea or a unipersonal force somewhere, but someone who can be known personally. Think about that. Imagine uh, two scholars, and for, you know, original sake, we'll call them Scholar A and Scholar B, and they're trying to write a, a biography of that great man, Sir John Doe. And let's say Sir John Doe lived in Edinburgh and he died, and we don't know exactly when he was born, but he's died in 1721, and they're trying to get to the essence of his life, these two scholars. Both scholars believe that Sir John Doe wrote five letters to his wife, and we have those and, and know they're authentic, or at least they're, they're in circulation, and there's a whole lot that we can learn here. And then there's also this great autobiography that Sir John Doe wrote about himself. And Scholar A says, I believe the biography is authentic. It's genuine. Scholar B says, I don't believe that. They disagree, and they sit down and write their separate biographies. And these biographies, in the end, are going to be very, very different. If that really is Sir John Doe's autobiography then Scholar A's biography of him is going to give all kinds of additional detail, so much more personal. And when you're done reading it, you're going to feel, hey, I really know the guy in the text. On the other hand, Scholar B's biography is going to be so much more remote, much more general, much more speculative, and you're going to hardly feel you can know the person in the text at all, and it all comes down to, is the autobiography authentic? Here's the point. If Jesus Christ actually is God come in the flesh, you're going to know so much more about God, so much more personal stuff, detailed, specific stuff. He's going to be graspable. He's going to be someone you can relate to in the text. And look, what do we get in the text? We see him weeping. We hear him crying and laughing. We see him ticked off and making a whip and running the bums out of the joint. We see him get upset. We see him be funny. We see him cast down. We see him sleeping. We see all of these things. If Jesus is who he really says he is, then we have an authentic however many page, autobiography of God, in a sense. Our understanding will be vastly, vastly more personal or specific than any other philosophy, any other religion could possibly produce. On the other hand, if he's not who he says he is, then our view is completely distorted. You can't say all the faith systems are the same. Absolutely not. If Jesus Christ has come, then we have a lot more detailed knowledge so that our relationship can, in fact, be personal and mystical. The incarnation makes you look at what God has done, and through that lens, you can get to know him personally. See, if he really did become a person in history, how much more then 
is it fair to expect that the Holy Spirit would make him real? If he was real in history, the Holy Spirit can make him real in your heart. The incarnation is an invitation to become deeply mystical, to know God personally. It's an invitation from God to say, look at what I've done to get close to you. Now get close to me. I don't want to be merely a concept in your world. I want to be your friend. I want to live with and in you. If you take the incarnation seriously, it means to become deeply mystical. It also means to become happily material. To get everything I'd like to say in this point, simply go back and listen to the message again on I believe in God, our creator, from a few weeks ago. Here's the point. Greek and Roman readers of the verse, uh, verse 3, would have been absolutely freaked out when John said, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Because you see, the Greek and Roman and even some people today believe that all matter is bad, including your, your body. And only the divine is good, that God would not, God could not come down here and that spirit, the divine, could not become matter in a physical body here. Tradition religion says salvation is escaping out of the world into the kingdom of God. The gospel of the incarnation says salvation is the kingdom of God coming into our world. The gospel is the kingdom of God is coming down into this world. In other words, the body, your body, everybody's body is important. Matter is important. The world is important. He took on physical flesh. Therefore, Christians can know in, know in the name of Christ, we, we, we share our faith, and in the name of Christ, we help people. We help people out of slavery. We help people out of suffering. We help people out of injustice and homelessness. It's all part of believing the incarnation. Deeply historical and very happily material. And next, fearlessly relational. The incarnation imprints a bias towards relationships in God-fearing people. Take a look at and see. What's the point of these first four verses? One word, fellowship. He says, I want fellowship with you. John clearly implies this. The incarnation of God means God wants to be in fellowship with you. I want you to think about that. God wants a relationship with you. The test that you know what this is all about and that it's really taken root in your life is you become desirous of close, personal relationships with other people. And when you lose them or they're wounded and they become complicated, it hurts you on a level that you didn't even know you could and you become a whole lot better at building relationships because the incarnation is actually the secret 
of good personal relationships. If there's anything to take away from this, listen up now. Suppose there are two people, and they're different culturally, maybe, and even different linguistically. How are they ever going to have a relationship? Well, one can either wait for the other one to learn their language and adopt their culture, or they can become vulnerable and weak and do their best to learn, you know, a preschooler's vocabulary of the language and constantly asking, is this the right word? What's the word for this? How do I say that? What? I just called your mother a tractor? I'm sorry. (laughs) True story. In other words... If you enter into the other person's world, you become weak, vulnerable. The other person keeps the power. They know the culture. They know the language. But what you end up with? A relationship. Or maybe another lens to see this. Uh, a marriage. Let's say this, a couple is having a terrible fight about uh, child care. And, you know, the, the wife might say, I really need your help with the child care from you. It's driving me crazy. And the husband says, that is beneath me. I, I don't know why he suddenly has an accent. Uh, the wife says, look, I come from a home where the father so loved the mother that he always helped out. And the husband replies, Yeah, well, I come from a home in which the mother loved the father so much she never asked for help. What's going on? In the family world, the wife came from. To the husband, child care meant love and respect. In the family world that the husband came from, child care meant lack of love and disrespect. How in the world are you going to resolve this? All couples who've never had any conflict or complications, please raise your hand. Yeah, we're looking for somebody to read, lead the marriage retreat. Okay, notice only Nate Rosie's hand just, just didn't, just pointing that out for the record. Okay, how do, you, how do you resolve this? You resolve it by simply asking, okay, Who's going to live like Jesus? Who's going to go the way of incarnation? Who is going to get into the other person's world? If you both sit there waiting, saying, come into my world, change your love language, you know what's going to happen? Bad things are going to happen. But even if one of them, or better yet, both of them, but if even just one of them would follow the way of Jesus and say, wow, I'm sorry, I was working so hard at being understood, but not at understanding you. I'll work not so much on getting my needs met, but by meeting your needs. I won't work so much on you understanding my love language as entering into your world and giving you what you consider love, speaking your love language, not what I consider love. I'm going to strive for fluency in your love language. See, if you believe in the incarnation, if you see what Jesus has done, 
it's going to make you automatically super great at personal relationships. Okay. Mystical, material, relational, and last. Freely emotional. What do you mean, Tom? Look at the last verse. He says, I want you to have fellowship with us. I want you to believe what we're saying. I want you to understand the meaning of the incarnation. I want us to be united in community. I want us to be united in belief. Then he says, I'm doing all this, why? So that our joy may be complete. Wow. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I need for your lives to be all tidied up and super great so that I can have joy? No. He already has joy. He doesn't say, you need to get your act together in order for me to have joy. He has joy. He says, you need to get your act together in order for my joy to be complete. And there's a life-giving balance here. Because of the incarnation, you never, ever look at anybody else a spouse, a boss, anything. You never look at them and say, I need you to be okay for me to have joy. I need you to be okay so I can be okay. That is a trap you will never get out of. I need the world to be all right and perfect so I can have joy. You're, you're, be prepared to be disappointed. I need other people to do or be anything else for me to have joy. I got to have that thing. I got to have that perfect deal. I got to have a marriage. I got to have a job. I got to have for me to be, to have joy. But see, a follower of Jesus Christ can reject that nonsense because the incarnation gives you an internal subterranean spring of joy no matter how bad your circumstances. Well, Jody and I lived in Cedar Rapids. We lived on the side of a hill in this house, and it had an unbelievably lush green yard all of the time. And on the downhill side, the several houses you could see, they had an unbelievably lush green yard. But the neighbors to the sides, man, they were having to water it all the time to have a lush green yard. Plus, our basement was never wet, but it was always damp. Yeah, because there was a spring on the upslope in our backyard that constantly, constantly was watering everything. We had a great garden there then, too. And just like that, that spring, the spring of joy that's in the life of a believer, it keeps you green. It keeps you fresh. It's always, always, always there after all. Jesus Christ has come. I don't mean there's never any hardship. I don't mean there's never any suffering. I don't mean there's never even disappointment, death, and prayers that go unanswered. But there's a fountainhead inside that bears up. Sure, maybe needs people to gather around and encourage and pull you along, but there's something there that's not of your own doing. As the Lord has opened up a spring in the driest of deserts, the human heart. A, and into that, a source for limitless joy. So often, 
I mean, why harp on this, Tom? It's because so often we, we are afraid to step into the lives of other people because we can't stand the idea of tying our hearts to another person because of the wounds of the past or whatever. And if they're unhappy, you end up unhappy. So we withdraw. We don't risk getting hurt. We don't risk getting burnt. We stop being close, close to people. The incarnation means Jesus Christ, God himself, got tangled into our brokenness, into our mess, into the horror our lives can become. He got involved to the point that he was weeping. Why on earth would God of the universe, who invented joy, why would he weep? He was brokenhearted. And beyond that, he was crushed and crucified and died. The story doesn't end there. He was resurrected. And because of that, you and I, he became brokenhearted so that you and I could have a spring of complete joy that cannot go away and give you the freedom to honestly love other people, even those you disagree with, even those you don't vote like, even those you don't look like, even those you don't understand reality like, even those you hate. Give you the freedom to honest to God love, even yourself. The incarnation makes it free to be emotional and, to re- and makes you realize the emotions of hurt or grief are never going to be able to take me all the way down because there is a spring of complete joy. If you believe the doctrine of the incarnation, it'll make you deeply mystical happily material, fearlessly rational, and freely emotional. What else could you ever possibly want? Think about this next time when you say, and you only have 247 more shopping days, until Merry Christmas. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.